This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where you can now find in their beautiful cellar Z on West Burnside some great events, tasting events. March 9th, it would be Italian wines. March 16th, there's an Irish beer dinner with gigantic brewing beer. And then March 19th, Beer 101, which features loggers and then the icons of tuscany on march 23rd yeah you might have noticed there's a bit of an italian theme going on at zupans that's because it's a culinary journey through italy this month at your local zupans you can discover new italian ingredients and learn about italian producers and sip your way through the country Uh, they've got all sorts of great stuff this this is one of the many things we love about zupans is they have all the regular great local stuff in stock that you have come to know and love but all the time they're sourcing from italy in this case uh including pasta and pasta sauces we know a lot of these places because we do those trips there and it's really special and we've identified a lot of places in sicily where we've met the producers so that's very cool um to do it's really cool to go through an italian month and there's always fun stuff i know i don't know if they're doing it this year but last year they had panolo gelato there serving samples of gelato so uh as again i don't know if that's happening this year but they'll have things like that at least at zupan's all of march Absolutely. Three locations to serve you, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. And of course, everything you'd ever like to know about Zupans can be found where? Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It is Portland's Food Scene Podcast, right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures. I'm co-host, Court Johnson. How are you doing, Court? How are you navigating this this little bit of snow here and there this year? This is a weird year. It is a weird year, and you'll actually hear me address the snow with our, our guest today when we talk about today's guest on the podcast, because yesterday at, you know, eight nine in the morning i think most of us we you know whether you were driving into work or just looking out the window suddenly had snow falling again and out here where i'm at it was actually sticking on the ground for a little while it melted by the end of the day but it's a weird weather year it's colder right now than it's normally been i was actually just uh hearing that uh, the cherry blossoms that we normally have on the trees along the waterfront in downtown portland are not yet there like you know this time last year three years ago they were there but not this year because it's way too cold yeah i've seen a lot of uh things starting to bloom or starting to come up from the ground i haven't seen that but i know on the east coast they've had a mild winter so there must be something going on i'm gonna guess maybe someday we'll realize there's climate change going on who knows (laughs) (laughs) well Chris, come on! I, I had the no, no, I'm gonna go I had the oddest trip yesterday. Uh, left Manzanita and was up on the summit on 26 at about 10:30 in the morning, and all it was unbelievable. All the deciduous trees were covered in crystal, you know, in ice, mm-hmm. and 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 the um, all the pine trees were covered in snow and it was i've never seen anything like that up there i mean i've done that trip over a thousand times 
It was unbelievable, and it was a little di- not too dicey on the road at all, but it just on the sides just looked beautiful. And then I was a little concerned because I was just making a trip to drop someone off at the airport and then come back, and that it was going to be worse because it was kind of snowing and raining when I was going through it. Um, and then I came back, the sun was out, and everything was except a little bit of snow on the ground, but everything was off the trees, not a thing. And it yeah. was only three degrees warmer. I just thought that was it, that's all it takes to change things. So uh, it was interesting to see. And, uh, you know, as I said, I've done that trip. I've calculated it's over uh, just about a thousand times round trip on 26 into mm-hmm. Portland, which leads me to a um, couple of things. Um, uh, you and I just discussed perhaps doing a, another recap of my suggestions on the north and central coast because I spend quite a bit of time there, more so than most people who live in Portland. So maybe... People can look forward to that perhaps next week. And that's also why you are doing this interview. We actually have a professional conducting the interview this week (laughs) because I was was just hosting someone and I could have done it, but I just want to take my mind off it. And you gave me some relief from the podcast. Not that I need relief. I love doing it, but just the responsibility of another week. How many weeks? So that's... We have put something out there, Court. So nine times 50, so almost 500 times, 500 weeks in a row. How many people try to start podcasts and do them like once a month and then give them up? Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I mean, we've talked about this before, but um, the the biggest key to any uh, podcast success that I have seen, and we're obviously seeing it with Right at the Fork, is just consistency, but... Um, it's tough. I mean, especially when, if you're just getting going and you're paying everything for out of pocket, I mean, we've been very, very fortunate that we've had the, the world's greatest sponsors come on board, um, that have made it a lot easier for us, I think to, right. Well, it's a little motivating anyway, we did. Well, sure. There, there, there is that first two years we just invested. Right. And, uh, somehow we may do. That was before you were actual co-host. At that time, you were the you were our engineer. I yeah, I was. I was actually the only paid employee. Right. So we paid you to get the podcast done, and yeah. we we generated a little bit of sponsorship. But at any rate, it's it's you know sometimes I beat myself up for how that the fact that I could have accomplished more in life. But I do think that doing this for nine, coming on 10 years, from the time that people didn't know what a podcast was, now to the time where everybody has one, uh, mm-hmm. is, uh, is a bit of an accomplishment. And if you look back and how many interviews we've done, it's over 300. That's a lot of people, and that's a lot of time, and that's a lot of knowledge. So therefore, everybody, subscribe to the podcast so you hear the ones coming up. And secondly, go check out rightatthefork.com or Spotify and type in anything in our archives. I mean, if, if there's a chef or a f- food maker that you love in Portland, chances are you can hear about their backgrounds on the podcast. And let's point that out, Court. This podcast is not about food. 
People write us all the time. Let's discuss my latest menu items. No, this podcast is about the people who make the food and their backgrounds. Now, as a matter of course, we do discuss restaurants, bars, breweries, and that happens as a matter of course because this is the life they lead. We're going to talk about it. But we're not here to talk about what's the newest thing in a restaurant and what they're offering, um, except ringside. <laughs> that we can do. Well, it's different. There's, right. Right. But, but anyway, so if you have guest ideas, we are more than receptive to them. Um, but we'd like guests that are kind of dynamic who have stories to tell and thoughts and we don't need a lot more a lot many more pandemic stories we've had a lot of them if they're really interesting and they cause someone to end up in a new place and it's awesome that's great but at any rate we welcome your guest ideas and um we also ask you to subscribe and share these interviews with your friends so we do grow we still like to grow after this many years sure so yeah. All right. That's too much of my voice. The beauty of this is you got to hear Court today and not me. And here I go. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you had mentioned you had uh, taken, take, I'm doing this in quotes. Nobody can see it, but you, Chris, <laughs> you had taken the, the week off to, to host a friend and, and go up and down the coast. So we'll, we'll talk about that more in depth on next week's podcast, because I was one of those people seeing you post pictures and talk about what you were up to. And being like, oh man, I need to re- I need to hit up Chris again and ask exactly where he went and what I should get. Um, but we're going to do that for everybody in next week's episode. Cool. Um, so this week, uh, really great guy on the podcast and, and a really fascinating story, Chris. I'm not sure how how much you know about uh, Breakside Brewery, but uh, one of the relatively newer breweries in in the Portland scene, relatively speaking, they started in 2010. But the story of Ben Edmonds is is fascinating in the sense that uh, his job at, at at Breakside more or less was his first time as a brewmaster. He he had done a little bit of work on the side, had gone to school for it, but when he became the the brewmaster there at Breakside, he was a newbie and was coming in, and in pretty short form, Breakside started winning all sorts of different awards, um, both locally here in Oregon and then nationally and then internationally suddenly they like eight world beer cup awards a bunch of uh, great American beer festivals and I think a lot of it has to do and we'll talk about this uh, when you listen to the interview uh, with Ben kind of being just kind of the new one and just you know not really having a pattern set for him of how to go about things he was able to kind of carve out his own niche so um, really fascinating guy went to uh to school initially to to be a high school teacher in fact that's what he was doing for a lot of years but uh fell in love with home brewing and uh realized that that's where his passion was and led him to going to the siebel institute are you familiar with the siebel institute i'm not that's one of the institutes i don't know about yeah the siebel institute uh is in chicago it's basically it's it's been around for years and years and years maybe hundreds of years but uh for a lot of german immigrants it's where they would send their their kids to become a brewmaster so they could become you know the brewmasters for a lot of a lot of those midwest huge gigantic breweries that we're all familiar with um probably had some touch points through siebel institute and ben did that exact same thing spent some time in in europe in munich uh going to school there um but then came 
here to Portland and teamed up with the the guys that created Breakside Brewery, and he's been their only brewmaster since since the start. And I, you know, we don't get into too much of of the awards they've won, but they've won all sorts of awards. Um, I'm fascinated just by this whole idea of somebody having a job title like brewmaster because it is quite literally like. Like, I don't know. It feels like medieval, Chris. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like an old school job, kind of like a goldsmith. Um, so super fascinating. So we're, we're going to talk with Ben today about his journey, where he started, what brought him to, uh, to Portland, and how he kind of sees the current environment of breweries, not just in Portland and in Oregon, but uh, nationally, because he has seen a change in the past 10, 15 years, and we talk about that a bit. Plus, we find out where he likes to send people when he's not saying go to Breakside, other great uh, breweries in town, and places to eat. I discovered a couple of new ones that I hadn't even heard always of. Always a good reason to listen to this podcast, as we are generally always ask that question, and you get some... You know, you get some great recommendations. Just also to set the just set the foundation for this, 2010. I, I you know I haven't done any great research into the beer industry in Portland, but I happen to know that you know Portland is a hot, has been a hotbed for microbreweries and people travel from far and wide to come uh, experience our beer scene. In addition to some other scenes we have. And so Breakside has been in the center of that for 13 years now, or uh, we always hear about Breakside. And so this is a, you know, this is a, a key uh, player in the beer industry here. So in, in an important beer market in the country. So um, that's great that we get to hear from Ben and uh Thank you for doing that, and thank you for your background on it. You did a great job rounding out, explaining where Ben came from and how he got to where he was. Yeah, well, and again, the the the, the conversation I had with Ben will fill in all the blanks because I just did a you know thirty thousand foot view right there. Very very good. We're talk about very good. Let's fly. Right at the fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. And by... In Oregon, flavor is not just about food, but about character, freshness, and sustaining this beautiful place. Our fishermen continue to work hard to bring that flavor to all families who care about good food and healthy eating. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon.
First of all, thank you for doing this today. Did you get uh, snow out? Where are you uh, coming from today, Ben? Well, I'm in uh, Milwaukee at our production brewery, Milwaukee, Oregon, that is. Uh, and it's it, it looks like it's stopped now. It's kind of snowing on my way in lightly. And now it's kind of gone to more like rain and a few flakes. Yeah, I think people in the uh, Portland metro today had kind of a collective WTF when they either were driving in or I looked out the window today and not only was it snowing, but it was sticking for a while. And I'm like, what yeah. the hell is this? I know it's been, it's been a cold winter for sure. seems like. Yeah. So, yeah. So obviously you made it in, in to work fine. So um, I, I have so many questions for you, Ben, but I should point out to you, and I don't know if this is the, the definition of irony or not, but um, you're a brewmaster. You've been doing this for, for over a decade now. And I am a guy who is a late comer to, to beer and alcohol. I, I don't have a taste for it. So I don't like, it's going to be hard for me to really talk to you about like, you know, my personal preferences on it simply sure. because I haven't figured that out quite yet. Yeah. Um, but I am, I've always been fascinated, um, with people that I've, they've met over the years that have become brewmasters because it is really one of those trades, those those positions, those jobs that is hundreds, if not thousands of years old. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, I think there's this whole slate of different professions out there that you could look at kind of from the outside and say, how does anyone ever actually get into that? You know, railroad engineering or being a longshoreman or something like that. And brewmaster brewing, professional brewing is one of those that I think falls into that camp. And for a long time, you know, really through most of the late 19th and early 20th century in the United States, uh, it was a profession that was kept amongst a a small immigrant community in the kind of, uh, in their their children, right? The subsequent generations of those German immigrants to the United States a Mm -hmm. lot of the time. And it's only in the last 40 years that I think as craft beer has kind of emerged, smaller breweries have come to the forefront of American brewing, that it's a more kind of uh, quotidian profession that you actually run into people, especially in the Northwest, who are involved in that in the beer industry. Yeah, you hear a lot a lot of time. Like more and more, I'm finding out that my friends and neighbors are craft brewers themselves. That so they've picked up kits and have started to right. experiment. And that's more commonplace than it was, you know, today than it was even 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people point to the um, legalization of home brewing in the late 70s and the publication of the Joy of Home Brewing as kind of sparks that. Uh, kind of ignited this interest of in a, in a generation of hobbyists, many of whom went on to become professional brewers themselves. You know, up until that point, there wasn't really an amateur side to the industry that served as a feeder. And the only way to really get in as a, at a technical brewing side was to go to brewing school and to have some sort of way to uh, find your way into that sort of trade. What, where, uh, where do you fit into that? Because I know your background didn't initially start as you know this wasn't necessarily your what you went to school for at the right. at the beginning yeah it was um for me i started as an enthusiast as a you know really got into craft beer uh enjoy as just kind of uh, enjoying it um you know i loved going to brew pubs and having this kind of range of different uh beer styles available to taste and try and explore kind of the history behind those i kind of nerded out on that side of the uh, beer industry before I ever really actually started making beer. And by the time I kind of then went, well, I should start that thought again, is that like I went from just kind of enjoying it to very quickly wanting to learn how to make it uh, and got into the hobbyist side of things. So I started as a home brewer, as many people did, 
Um, and at some point, you know, I kind of, the, the bug had bit me and I wanted to see if I could find a way to turn that um, hobby into a profession. And even 15, 16 years ago, when I got into professional brewing, the there were limited options. You know, there are only 2,000 breweries in the entire country. And so even back then, uh, a decade and a half ago, it was still viewed as kind of like a hard, a hard job to land. You either had to luck out or you didn't know someone or you had to go, have gone to brewing school. And so I actually went to brewing school before I ever had a professional brewing job, which is sort of rare these days, I would say. Um, I, I want to r- really talk about this um, because, a- again, it, it's kind of this fast – kind of to your point where um, the, the few people – Decades ago, in fact, I remember the first time I met a brew ma- uh, brewmaster. I was uh, this was in the early days of uh, I in radio, and I was doing actually a little bit of TV. And uh, this uh, TV station had hired me to go to a uh, German brewery, and you know, kind of do the little morning features, wacky stuff that you see on TV. I was supposed yeah. to you know entertain people, but but anyway, so they introduced me to the to the uh, brewmaster, and he was this young twenty year old kid. And I didn't believe that they had a brewmaster because me, I was just so naive to this whole idea that, that, that a brewmaster was his technical job. And he's like, no, he, he walked me through and showed me all his vats and we didn't get into the nuts and bolts of it, but, um, kind of to your point. So, um, did you grow up in, in the Pacific Northwest or where did you grow up? I'm a Midwest transplant. I grew up just outside of Detroit, Michigan, um, okay. and then moved to the Northwest in, uh, like 2007, but definitely an area of the country that's got a history of 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 beer being made, but probably oh, more yeah. on the on the more massive side of stuff that you know yeah. Anheuser Busch that comes out of that area and and things like that, right? Yeah, and I grew up spending summers in Wisconsin and Minnesota, so the kind of uh, great tavern and brewing traditions of those states, especially mm-hmm. Wisconsin, are things that I was uh, kind of. Um, exposed to early on. Um, I didn't, you know, it's not like my, my parents are not, we're not big beer drinkers. Uh, I think I kind of came into it more um, through food. And like I said, uh, you know, brew pubs, oftentimes when traveling in the Midwest and traveling in the Northeast 15, 25 years ago, were kind of these havens for local culture in a lot of ways. Um, before there was really a localist movement, a uh, farm to table movement, brew pubs were a dependable way to find kind of a homegrown, homespun um, site, a place that felt like it wasn't just kind of a generic restaurant, a generic pub. And so it was actually through the kind of the food side of that and then like getting into beer that I became interested in brewing. Uh, But, you know, the beer culture of once I got into that, the beer culture in the Midwest was something that became really um, a great resource because there is so much of it there in, in those states, in those upper Midwest states. I just did in my head, Ben, I just did this kind of point of reference. I, I think what you were talking about was kind of back in the probably the the 90s when the gastro pub was kind of the, the big buzzword. Is that kind of what you're talking about, where the gastro pubs were kind of everybody was talking about those place to get some great food and some great local beer? Yeah, that, right. That's kind of an imported concept, right, from the UK. Like, I think they use that term. I feel like that never really took off as too much of an American term. I think it's a little fussy. Uh, yeah. right? But it um, but yeah, I think that is the idea. Uh, but you went to school. Uh, initially, you you were a high school teacher, from what I understand, right? I did. Yeah, I taught high school for four years out of college. So 
when I moved to, before I moved to Oregon, I was uh, teaching in Colorado for four years. Okay. But, and specific to moving to Oregon, um, it was to, to lean into the, to the brewing. That's what brought you here? There were a lot of other kind of, uh, you know, circumstances that led me to want to leave that job and move to somewhere a little bit bigger. Um, but definitely in the back of my mind at the time, it was the idea that I wanted to try and transition from being, uh, in education to professional brewing, commercial brewing. And, you know, I've always kind of said that, you know, if you want to be an actor, you move to New York or LA. If you want to be a brewer, you move to Portland, San Diego or Denver. Right. And right. I've been living in Colorado. And so I couldn't stomach the idea. I've been living in the mountains. And so I couldn't stomach the idea of being in Denver and staring up at the mountains, wondering how the snow was all the time uh, and right. uh, not being able to ski. So I just had to kind of cut off Colorado and uh, that left San Diego and, and Portland. And I really just love fell in love with Portland when I came to visit it. So walk me through this, this conversation, whether it, you know, I, I, again, I don't, I don't know if you were, if you're married, if you were married at the time, like, or even just your parents, you'd gone to school to become a high school teacher, you're high, teaching high school, and then you make this decision to do something completely different. Um, when did the schooling come in? You said you went to, to you, you know, went to school to be a brewmaster. When, when did that? Yeah. Happen? So I moved to Portland. I'm kind of on that, on the whim, on the, with the, you know, twinkle in my eye of becoming a brewer, right? Uh, got established here, made friends, spent about eight months in Portland kind of bouncing around and really, to be honest, just kind of like enjoying myself. And it was that time when, you know, right before Portlandia came out where I do feel like the Portland was the dream city, really the dream of the right. 90s was alive, you know, uh, in 2007. And uh, I went to brewing school at the end of that year. Um, so, uh, basically left Portland to go to the Siebel Institute in Chicago, uh, and then in Munich. Uh, and so then came back to Portland after that. Yeah. And so, and so what was the, the, uh, the, uh, family conversation and that, you know, whether it was your parents or whomever just say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. What was, what was the reaction? You know, there was some pushback and some surprise, but ultimately I come from a background that's pretty embracing of those sorts of things. My dad spent, um, you know, his entire career in one job. And I would say that after about the first eight years of it, he probably, he always said that it was uh, intellectually stimulating, but emotionally empty. And I think yeah. that for me and my brother, he really wanted to make sure that we chose things that while we would be successful and be able to support ourselves, support a family that we also really loved. So when he saw that it was kind of passion driven, I think that there was a lot of embrace of that. My mom was sure. a little more skeptical at first, but she came around to it pretty quickly too. I've I've always been intrigued by that, and, and maybe that's just the dynamic of of, of couples, you know, and, and parent figures. Is um, one tends to be the dreamer, the other one seems, you know, is more quote reasonable, or you know, wants sure, wants yeah. you to be grounded and, and worries about you that way. Because I've seen that with my own parents and my and my wife's parents. It's just kind of interesting how that typically works out. Um, I, I guess that's why they end up together is they kind of balance each other. Yeah, and you know, I think that the the thing there that was kind of a the challenge was, like I said before, that it's not like in Portland in 2007, you could just walk into a brewery with no experience and get a job washing kegs and kind of work your way up from the bottom up. There were just so right. few jobs available. Then. Even though we think of Portland as having a lot of breweries, even in 2007, um, there weren't that many brewing jobs. And mm -hmm. the people who had them liked them and they didn't really leave them. And so those jobs didn't open and people tended to when they did open, it tended to be someone who's on the front of house who could move over and take that over. So there was kind of, it was really hard to find a, uh, 
line in on a job at an existing brewery if you didn't have some sort of uh, reason to be applying there. You know what I mean? And that reason right. was often like had to be some sort of technical training. Um, to, I wouldn't advise to anyone today to do what I did then because I just think the marketplace is so different. I mean, we are con- regularly looking for folks at Breakside who want to get their first job in the beer industry. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the enthusiasm can go a long way there. Great. You just answered the, the question I was going to follow up with just, you know, and, and you've seen that change kind of kind of to your point in the past 15, 16 years, the shift from um, no jobs. And then, you know, just I think, you know, obviously the job market's done what it's done the past few years where whether whether it is specific to the brewing or just, you know, working in, a, in the restaurant industry, um, the food and, and beverage industry, it's, it's way different even three years past, you know, into this pandemic than, than it was. Yeah. And like, for example, you know, even in 2015 or so, I can't remember exactly what year he was, you know, for a few years, I taught a class at Lewis and Clark kind of, you know, I remarried my uh, teaching and my brewing sensibilities and taught a class on fermentation science and kind of the beer industry and commercial brewing uh, as a seminar. And a couple of students, a handful of students out of that actually got brewing jobs you know, without any other additional training other than one class uh, that they had had. So it goes to show that, like, even a little bit of education uh, five years, six years, seven years after I had gone through this was really all that you needed to be able to kind of get a, uh, you know, entry, even above an entry-level brewing job, kind of a skilled brewing job in 2015 as the, re- as the industry was really rising. So, yeah, I, I've definitely seen it change. And it's interesting to see what's happening now because it's a different, you know, again, we're seeing some churn in turbulence in the marketplace. So prior to you uh, going to Munich uh, for school, had had you traveled through Europe and, and done kind of the, you know, the, a tour of the, the different beers that you can get through throughout Europe? Had you done that prior to your trip out there? Uh, not really. No, I had been, I'd spent time in France. I'd spent time in Spain. Um, and gosh, thinking back, that's probably about it before I did that trip. I mean, that was definitely, you know, a really formative experience. Um, I think that, you know, back in 2000, that year, those years from 2000 to 2007, 2010, the import market and the craft import market was so much more robust in the U.S., especially mm-hmm. on the East Coast and in Colorado that I had experienced, I think, relatively fresh versions. A lot of those classic European beers, those kind of foundational canonical beers. Um, but to actually go to Belgium and go to Germany and have them in, on, on site and have them as fresh as they can be was really uh, an eye opener. And, and and what is that process like, the actual schooling in Munich? I mean – um, you know, for, for somebody like me who w- wouldn't even know how, uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's practically taught, like what, what is that experience like? Yeah, it's, so it's actually the Siebel Institute's the oldest brewing school in the United States. It's been around since the mid, uh, 19th century. I think they actually just celebrated maybe 140 or 150 years. And it was founded as a way for German immigrants to have their sons get educated in brewing science and technology. Um, if you got a diploma from there, then you became a brewer in the United States. Right. Um, they established a program, a cooperative program with the Dimmons, in, uh, Dimmons Academy just outside of Munich. So all students who start at this Siebel program do kind of a multi, I guess about a two-month program in Munich with a shared faculty. So you have American faculty who go over there as well as the German faculty who are all uh, English speakers. It's all in English at that point, at least my schooling was. Uh, there are a number of other brewing schools in Germany that are uh, that some Americans go to that are in German, uh, but mine was in English. And 
you know, it's uh, you're trained as in German lager brewing there in the kind of production, finishing, packaging, uh, marketing, and and uh, quality control of those beers. Um, and then also as part of that, they include kind of a uh, 10-day or so tour around some of the great brewing sites of Europe um, where you actually go and meet brewmasters and do long tours, kind of in-depth tours, and uh, get a little bit more hands-on experience. Is it, uh, I would assume, though, you know, even though it's 10 days, it's pretty kind of a whirlwind tour. Like how much of that you actually are retaining the information? Yeah. I mean, it's like with any of those things. You, I, I did the math at one point. You know, the amount of classroom time that I had in a trade school situation, you know, was the equivalent of like, it lasted, you know, six, seven months was the equivalent of basically two years of regular classes at a college level, you know? Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, and you, I, right, and you don't retain it all of that. Time. Right, be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Good. You, know, you have to go back to it again and again and again. It's the feelings you felt inside, Ben. That's the most important. It's not. In the, what, well, I do always say, you know, with you asked about the the kind of confidence and the decision to go make this transition from teaching to brewing. But I do remember this feeling the first or second week that I was at Siebel in Chicago. And was studying brewing full time and brewing science. And it was, I, I just had this moment where I saw my whole career open before me in a way mm-hmm. that I had never felt up to that point. And I sort of said, oh, yeah, this is it. This is for me. I want to be part of this. I want to do this. And part of that was just the kind of enthusiasm for the content itself. And part of it was seeing what a storied and kind of historic profession this is and thinking about being able to be in a part of that tradition and participate in it has always been really. Um, kind of motivating for me yeah totally um and and i and i think that leads me to a point where we're actually going to take a quick break a word from our sponsors as they say in the industry um because i want to talk about uh you uh, getting done with your uh schooling and where breakside starts i don't know how much time in between there there was we'll find out Hey, Chris, let's pause a moment and talk about Oregon Dungeness Crab. It's a favorite dish at holiday gatherings, special occasions, or just when you're in the mood for the sweet, delicate deliciousness you can only get from Oregon's tastiest crustacean. It's harvested sustainably from Oregon's cold, clean coastal waters and is available now at your favorite seafood retailer or restaurant. Oregon Dungeness serves up equally as an appetizer or an entree and lends itself to both down home and white tablecloth cuisine. And it's also as nutritious as it is tasty. We know it's tasty. A three ounce portion of cooked meat has 19 grams of protein and contains important minerals and amino acids. It's low in both fat and calories as well as cholesterol and carbohydrates. That's important to me. Yeah. And rest assured, the fishermen are not just delivering a delicious and healthy product. They're also taking care of natural resources for future generations. Visit OregonDungeness.org for information on preparing your favorite crab dish and learning more about the fleet. So go ahead and crack the mystique. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon. So Ben, I asked you that question, or I kind of set up the question of how much time between you finishing schooling to be a brewmaster and Breakside? How much time was in between the start of, of Breakside where you became the, the first brewmaster and yeah. the the only brewmaster so far, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, they, I keep showing up to work each day, so yeah. uh, they haven't, they haven't kicked me out yet. Um, 
it was actually relatively quick that I met the guys who were planning to found Breakside. So I came back from brewing school. I had, you know, this is also at a time when the approach to um, kind of getting a job, leaving brewing school, leaving Siebel, was that you would just simply send out resumes and, you know, physical resumes, physical cover letters to all the breweries who you're interested in uh, mm. applying to. Like a regular job. Yeah, like a regular job, you know. Yeah. Um, but so I think I probably sent out 30 letters to breweries around Oregon, you know, and I had it in my mind that I would spend, I'd come back from brewing school and I would spend a handful of months being patient, trying to find something in Portland. If that didn't work, I'd expand my search toward, you know, Hood River, the gorge, the valley, the coast, um, you know, and if I couldn't find something within five or six months, then I would have to really reconsider where, whether Portland was the place I could be in order to find a job. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got crickets. I mean, there was literally no one was hiring in the fall uh, of what was that? 2008, 2009 at that point. Um, and there was just no work to be found. Uh, so I, uh, was a little bit disheartened, uh, but I, and cause I had originally wanted to go somewhere where I would be, you know, trained by one of these brewers who I really was, it really admired in Oregon, you know, um, and whether that be brewing for a large shop like Widmer or Full Sail or, uh, brewing some more smaller, like at the time, Hopworks had just kind of really come out of the gate hot and was making some amazing beer uh, under Christian Ettinger and Ben Love. And, you know, thinking about trying to get a job there over at maybe out in the coast of Pelican, et cetera. Um, and no one was no one was hiring, just crickets. So uh, I didn't really love the idea of trying to join in with people on a startup, but I was, you know, getting to the point where like, OK, I really should try and make some moves here and was introduced to. Uh, the two guys who were planning to start Breakside by a mutual friend. And uh, we kind of hit it off very quickly. I mean, very quickly, they were to say, you know, hey, when we get this off the ground, do you want to be part of it? Uh, And I, you know, absent other opportunities and sensing that these guys kind of had their stuff together, I was like, yeah, okay, look, this sounds good. But it took a while. Uh, So it took, I think at that point, gosh, probably another year before I was actually working there and probably even a little bit longer before I was making any money, mm-hmm. um, being, getting a paycheck. Uh, in the interim, I did actually end up getting a job uh, part-time at Upright Brewing, uh, which it only was a very new brewery at the time, but I was very, very lucky to get that. Uh, and Alex Ganum, who uh, had started Upright, is an amazing brewer, incredibly thoughtful brewer, um, and just a very practical kind of like... Uh, technical brewer. So I learned a ton from him in a short period of time uh, that helped me. And he, he was even willing to let me kind of still work part-time at Upright while Breakside was actually opening and getting off the ground and while there wasn't really still full-time work for me there. Uh, so this period of overlap in that kind of, in that like 2009, 2010 time um, before I finally became, you know, Breakside opened and we were off the ground. Is that uh, is that normal? Because uh, you, you've kind of talked about your story is a lot different than the way a lot of people pr- prior to you had come up in the industry, uh, and definitely different as you pointed out than the way somebody might go about it now. So you becoming you know the brewmaster for this new uh, brewery in in town with relatively little 
actual experience, yeah. you know, doing it, it was, that that probably wasn't very normal, correct? Definitely not. I mean, and I think that, you know, it's kind of like going and getting a, like, I don't know. There's some something maybe akin to like going and getting a uh, master's in education administration without ever having been a teacher or something. Right. right? Like, uh, at the same time, you know, like I felt that my brewing education had very much equipped me for the basics of running a small three barrel pub. You know, I would not have felt comfortable running anything larger than that at the time. Um, but in some ways, what Breakside was offering was kind of like a basically glorified homebrew system at the commercial level, right? Um, three barrels at a time, six barrel fermenters, you know, the stakes were low, the volumes were low. Uh, it was, uh, you know, low, yeah, like it's just not a huge amount of beer. Uh, and it seemed like a great opportunity to try and kind of um, build my reputation and build my name and, and, and learn while also getting uh, kind of astonishingly getting some creative control over what we were doing. And, 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 you know, this, this question might be better posed to, you know, to, uh, your, the, your two, uh, you said there were two, two other guys that helped found, uh, yeah, correct. yeah. um, were they on the look? I mean, obviously they found you and they were happy with you and, uh, has led to a lot of success since, but like, were they looking for an established brewmaster to begin with? And then you, you know, ended up being connected with you. Do you know what their process was or what their intentions were? Yeah. That obviously I mean, changed. A little, it's a little interesting because I think what happened is that the, the original partnership, I mean, and I, I, there's only so much that I should probably really say about this, but is that the two guys, one was going to be the brewer, but his real, his experience was going to, was pretty much limited to home brewing. Sure. Um, and it turned out pretty quickly that he didn't really have the time, the skill set, or the, frankly, the interest, I don't think, to be like brewing full time. Um, yeah. And so it became clear they needed someone else. Uh, at the same time, I mean, like, even though I think, by looking backwards, it looks like a pretty low risk. I said low stakes a second ago. It wasn't low stakes for the money they were putting into it. But right. for someone who was already an established brewer, the idea of like kind of taking a flyer on two guys who had no experience in the beer industry on a tiny little brew pub in the basement of a you know, neighborhood that was not like a destination spot. I think there were probably a lot of people who they could have hired, but who they scared up, who were just sort of looked at and said, oh, I don't think that sounds good. I don't think I would say they didn't scare them off. They didn't scare them off. I don't think I should be careful about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have to assume that though, that because of that, um, just, you know, you guys were um, willing to try some things that more established places wouldn't do. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? I think so. I mean, and I think that there was, you know, like, I, I do think that coming into Portland, you know, as, as someone who was brewing, hadn't brewed elsewhere in Portland, I didn't have a lot of preconceptions about what the tap list needed to be like, you know, right. um, and what the beer program needed to be like in order to be successful, especially again, on a brew pub level, it was very different. So, you know, knowing that we wanted, of course, to put some crowd pleasing beers out there, uh, you know, mainly hot forward beers, like a hoppy amber at the time, like, you know, IRA is really popular then. Uh, as well as, of course, IPA and pale ale, you know, beyond that, like, I, we, I didn't really feel like there, I, we had to have, oh, we have to have a dark beer, oh, we have to have a wheat beer, oh, we have to have a porter, you know, like, we kind of, uh, I was given a lot of latitude, basically carte blanche to brew anything that uh, yeah. I thought would be interesting and fun and, you know, 
doing things that were different was definitely a priority. Uh, whether those beers were kind of culinarily minded or just stylistically different than what you were seeing in Portland at the time. I mean, I think we opened with a wit beer, an Irish stout, and a Goza, none of which are styles that are that, like, outside the mainstream. But no one in Portland had those three kind of tw- uh, takes on those beers, as on a wheat beer, on a stout, and on a sour, on a kind of spiced beer at the time. Mm-hmm. At what at what point was, you know, because if anybody were to Google your name, Ben, you, I don't know. I don't know how often you Google yourself, but um, one of the reoccurring, <laughs> yeah. reoccurring things I, I, I saw was uh, the year where uh, Breakside uh, had 100 different beers in, yeah. in the course course of a year. Was that early on in the process or was that uh, I, I didn't look to see what year that that happened? Yeah, I think the year that that was uh, kind of hot, we that got, kind of got some attention was probably 2013. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was that I think as a brew pub in 2010, 11, 12, we kind of earned a reputation for producing a lot of different new beers. You know, we would release a new beer every Wednesday. And that became a thing. Like we drew people into Decom, into that little pub. Uh, a, the food was great, the service was great, but like we were rotating beers in a way that a lot of places in town weren't doing. And so we were able to get some cachet and attention both at the media level and in the consumer interest level uh, just by rotating things more. Um, and uh, when we opened our production location in 2013, there was a lot of chatter that, oh, now that Breakside is kind of you have to produce more beer and more volumes of beer, they're gonna, you know, it's going to stifle their creativity. And so we kind of took that as a challenge to... Uh, prove that we wouldn't, you know, that we would still maintain this kind of uh, creative output of doing, you know, more than a beer a week while also producing much larger volumes of core brands like Pilsner and IPA. Uh, So that's where that came from. Uh, I don't think that, like, we certainly didn't think that that was going to become a big trend in brewing. But I think now, if you look at it, most breweries are trying to release between 50 and 100 beers a year, um, for better or for worse. And I think that's just become kind of the norm that mm-hmm. novelty is really important in craft beer. People want new beers. They want to try new things. Um, establishing rotating kind of ongoing rotating brands, the long, a lot of kind of lasting uh, velocity is really tough um, in the marketplace. And yeah, it's kind of become a lot more of a promiscuous beer market than it was 15 years ago. What is that as a, as the, as the brewmaster for Breakside and, and um, knowing, you know, or, you know, is is that fun for you? This idea of creating and trying all these different types of of different beers and and spins on different beers, or or for for me, I do, would just get anxious all the time, just you know, because I'm I'm you know I'm assuming that you know to to mass produce or to produce in in decent batches that you know that uh, there's a lot of experimenting that's going on and keeping track of every like i just think of you probably have notes on all on how all this stuff is going like i i would that i would be out i just i'm not very good at keeping track of measurements and all that stuff i'd be i'm done yeah in- um, but anyway that's long way for me to ask that question information tracking is definitely a big part of what we do uh you know data tracking um and is an incredibly useful resource uh and you know I guess at this point, there's a couple of pieces within that. One is that, you know, we have a huge, tremendous archive, 13 years in, now we have this huge archive of beers that we can lean on. So even if we're all feeling kind of not feeling especially innovative uh, for a month or two, there's plenty of good old ideas that we've had that we haven't produced in a while. You know, we can 
look back to 2014 and be like, what were some beers we made then that we might want to just kind of resuscitate, dust off, and spruce up? You know, So that's always an option. That's one of the benefits of having made all these beers. We can lean back on that archive. Two is, you know, we have a tremendously like, creative team now. So a lot of the kind of ideas, like not new ideas that come uh, out of breaks and are not necessarily mine, but they're kind of a, co- uh, a collaborative effort between our R&D teams, our production teams, and our production brewers. Uh, three is that um, I personally try and have fewer new ideas. I think, or don't try, I just have fewer new ideas than I did uh, 15 years ago. But I sure. try and have better ideas when I do have them. Like when a new idea comes through, it comes to me more fully matured, you know, yeah. um, kind of fully, fully uh, formed. And the last piece of it, I think, um, is that we've always, we're lucky at Breakside specifically in that like we've always had a range of sizes that we can do any batch in from as little as 90 gallons up to, you know, uh, 4,000 gallons. Mm-hmm. So having part of it, the, the, the privilege that I have is not necessarily having to decide what to brew. It's what size of things to brew. Sure. Uh, do, do you, um, I had a, a question there and then I was going to pivot off of it and now I've, I've lost the original Sorry, question. I get, that was a lot of bullet points I gave. In my no, no, no. No, it, it, again, it, it's fascinating to me just because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the, it's the art of the craft, um, what, what you're doing in there. And, you know, you, I think with any job, you do the same thing over and over again. It loses a little bit of its luster. And, and maybe to your point, you know, you're maybe not as adventurous, but, but you've got, you know, a decade and a half of wisdom now that's associated with stuff. So it, it's kind of informing your, your direction to a, to a large degree. Um, as you create stuff, this is actually one of the ones I was, I was thinking about, cause I think I read a quote um, from you talking about stuff you were working on, but then you said, you're probably not going to taste this for, for a while, or it's You know, it's still a few months out. Like yeah. what is, what is, what is that process like? Cause you're, you're creating stuff. You're, you're, I mean, I'm assuming you, at some points you make a batch and it just tastes horrible and you, you toss it out. Is that, is that part of the process in, in, as a brewmaster? Uh, if a batch does taste horrible, like one of our small batch R and D projects or even a large batch, yeah, of course we'll dump it. Uh, right. Certainly that's never a decision that I like having to make, but you know, there's a certain, uh, standard of quality that we have a baseline of quality that we have to meet with all our beers that our customers have come to trust us with. So that's, right. you know, that definitely happens from time to time. Uh, Fortunately, not too often because we have really great quality control measures in place uh, that generally can capture the catch things before they uh, get to that point. But uh, yeah, the creative process, the iterative processes that, like you know, we might be working on, we might identify, say, a project we want to um, start working on, like a you know, for example, we just this week released a new uh, in production a year-round beer. It's a Belgian-style wit beer that was called Breakside White and that's a beer that we have workshopped in various forms for many years. Uh, and, you know, had you come to the pubs and tasted a wit beer, there's going to be elements of that. You know, at some point in the past, there's going to be some element of that in this beer that we are making now. But this is the first time we're doing it here. So, you know, to, for us to go from ideation to execution to level where you're going to find that beer in a Fred Meyer in a Safeway and a New Seasons, uh, Costco, etc., is going to be, you know, somewhere in the, you know, six month to year and a half kind of timeline. Um, and 
that's just to try and, you know, we have to dial in raw materials use, we have to dial in um, kind of shelf stability, we have to dial in quality control checkpoints. Yeast management is a huge part of it in brewing, right? I mean, I think that like yeast stability is tremendously key and those are some of the technical aspects of it. And, you know, it just requires time also to taste beer, not only when it's young, but also you have to have, you know, it's not like we can just taste a beer when it's first ready and then say, okay, now let's go and redo this again and make these tweaks. We want to taste how that beer evolves at 15 days, 30 days, 45 days before we make too many maneuvers to try and change things up because, you know, stability is, is a part of what we do too. Beer has to sh- sit on a shelf for, you know, 30-ish days, oftentimes, if not longer, before it gets into a consumer's hands. So the, I guess that kind of uh, plays into the to this idea of um, when a when a brewery like Breakside says, okay, we're going to make this beer year round, meaning it's it's going to basically all, always be available. Right. Um, uh, you've got to put it through all those kind of those checkpoints of you know, is it going to are we going to be able to make this the same in March as we can in you know in November? I'm assuming that's yeah. me putting it in my dumb court terms. Um, so how many, how many year round beers, um, does Breakside currently do? Uh, I believe right now we, we do 10 beers year round. Okay. And yeah. are there, do you rotate those at all? Or is it just kind of when you, when you're ready to add something new or I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously there's probably some more into it, whether consumers are drinking it or not might be a factor or, or whatnot, but, uh, how often is some taken away and some added? Uh, we kind of reevaluate what the whole portfolio looks like on a yearly basis. Um, so the introduction of Breakside White is, it, you know, we are sunsetting a different one of those year-round brands right now. It's called True Gold. Um, we're going to keep making it as long as it's selling, but at some point, probably the sales have been diminishing, so it'll probably go away at some point. Um, and Breakside White will just take its place. It'll go back to nine. Um, yeah. So yeah, I kind of, you know, we have relationships with wholesalers, retailers that kind of play into when we can uh, add a new brand and remove a brand, you know, from that. But oftentimes we're just in conversation with those folks. And, you know, there's uh, what we're just trying to do is maintain kind of the uh, presence in the marketplace uh, and um, maintain a continuity of the portfolio that our retailers expect from us. Because we don't want to just pull a beer off the shelf and then they say, hey, where'd that beer go, guys? That was selling pretty well. Right. Us, right? So yeah. we have to um, be mindful of that. And so, you know, we find ways to manage that in production. Again, batch size is really the biggest control because freshness is really important to us. So we don't overproduce beers. You know, we try and maintain really tight pipelines on inventory. But fortunately, um, our production team is, are pros and they handle that really well. So we you know keep beers fresh and are able to manage that that group of ten beers. So I've got a, a bunch more questions about um, what your favorite beers are. I want to yeah. talk a little bit more about the this the, the wit beer that that you get, you're introducing year round. Yeah. Um, but we're going to take our final break and then we'll come back and talk about that. Great. Hey, Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Hey, Court, I know you love the hats, and I kind of do, too. I always have a hat on. Mm -hmm. For the first time in Ringside's 79-year history, you can get a hat, T-shirt, even an apron for your favorite Ringside fan. Those are available in person 
on West Burnside. Go to when you, while you're eating, ask for them, or just stop in after what four thirty, I guess. Yeah, this is really exciting for me, Chris. We were talking about this off air, and when you told me this news, I got really excited because uh, a few years ago, I noticed somebody back of house at Ringside wearing a really cool Ringside T-shirt, and I thought. I would like one of those, but you know, it's ringside steakhouse. You wouldn't necessarily think to go there and buy a t-shirt. Now you can first time in 79 years. This is exciting. This should, this should be headline in the New York times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So take advantage of that. Also take advantage of the three course prime rib dinner that takes place on Mondays. You you've done this. Oh yes. And it used to be Wednesday. So be aware because I had a friend join me for dinner once and she was expecting Wednesday night prime rib not happening. So yeah. um, But they do have it available outside of the special on weekends as well. So you can get prime rib with their unbelievable Yorkshire pudding um, on those nights. But the special is Monday night. That's the night to do it. I was there last night. Wednesday night, it was packed. So, um, but I wasn't packed to the point where you couldn't walk around in the uh, the hostess host section, but it was it was nicely packed. And of course, we had an incredible, including a, a meal, including the wagyu, which anybody has to do once at least in their lifetime or more. Once you do it once, you want to do it more. And I have. Uh, don't forget right now because it is Dungeness crab season. You right now on the menu in the in the appetizer section the chili lime Dungeness crab cake. So get that while you can. Or the crab cocktail was unbelievable. So I suggest anybody there if they if you're going with the table get the crab cocktail and the prawn cocktail and have a, start your meal off the right way, including onion rings, of course. Oh, yeah. Got to do, do, do that, too. So also, one quick thing, because we've been talking a little bit here. Halibut season starts May 10th, and Ringside will have that on the menu made Chef Jonathan Gill's way after that. So mark that on your calendar and make a reservation. You can do it at ringsidesteakhouse.com or on the Open Table app. All right, so Ben, this this wit beer, um, you'd said it's a Belgian style beer. Uh, yes, that's correct. Now, uh, do you have a? I think again, me, uh, I have googled you. You have, might not have googled yourself, but I believe at some point you talked about Belgium or Brussels being one of your favorite places to to drink beer. Is, yeah. is that all influence into this this wit beer? Yeah, you know, wit beer. It's interesting. It is not a huge. Um, doesn't have a huge presence in Belgium at this point outside of a couple relatively large brands. So it's not something that uh, I drink a ton of when I go to Belgium. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to end up finding myself gravitating more towards some of the Abbey style beers and the uh, spontaneous beers while there. Um, but yeah, you know, my interest in wit beer it comes a lot from uh, living on the East Coast and having access to Allagash White, which is, I would say, probably the uh, foremost, like paragon of the style uh, worldwide. Um, beautiful, Malin, subtle beer. Uh, in Colorado, when I was there uh, in the early aughts, uh, there was a beer called uh, White Rascal from Avery Brewing. Um, and of course, Colorado is the home of Blue Moon, uh, which is kind of the most mass market version of this uh, style. Uh, so I do think that 
um, yeah, I, I don't know if like my time in Belgium is what has influenced me as about wit beer specifically, uh, as much as maybe some other styles, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's great wit beer out there. Do you, uh, do you have a, uh, uh, a beer style uh, that you, uh, love the, above, uh, above all else? Maybe you have already answered that, but, um. Um, I mean, with, you know, you being in the industry and knowing, knowing how the sausage is made, so to speak, um, <laughs> I, I do you have something earlier, you, you know, I think one thing that has made Breakside successful and talking about the kind of like it, the, the production of all those different beers, you know, a hundred beers a year or whatever is, is that we're generalists. I'm kind of an unapologetic generalist. You know, I feel as comfortable, uh, brewing and producing and talking about, hoppy beer IPAs as barrel-aged stouts, as lager, as Saison, um, which is not to say that we are world-class brewers of every single one of those styles, but I think mm-hmm. that like my background and then brewing school training and then professional training in the Northwest kind of has lent itself to a uh, pretty wide net uh, or, you know, big tent kind of approach to brewing. And it, going back to like what I said about going to brew pubs originally, it's like I love tasting five or six different beers that are on tap. Um, you know, not just one beer. So, uh, A, I think we're generalists. B, no, I don't have a particular style that I, I hold, uh, you know, idolize above all others. Do you have, when, when you meet people, maybe somebody like myself who, again, is, I'm such a late comer, comer to it. And so I, you know, I, I haven't really, I don't have a, ta- a, a, a taste for it. Yeah. Do you have recommendations for, for people like that? Like if, you know, like a, a beer introductory, like try these beers out, kind of figure out which route you, like my father-in-law, he is, he loves IPAs yeah. so much. Like, um, in fact, we're excited. IPA is one of his favorite. Oh, and, awesome. um, but, but I would say, like, he'd say, here, taste this. And, you know, I taste it as, and again, as me not being very experienced in, in beer, like IPA is a very distinct uh, flavor, uh, taste profile. I was just like, well, I don't know if this is where I should be starting. Are there better places for, for, uh, for newbies of legal age to start? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, first I love trying to find a beer that someone enjoys, you know, uh, I guess my first question in that situation scenario would always be kind of like, what, what don't you like, you know, right. what are the things that turn you off to And when you've disliked beer in the past, you what are the things you've disliked? Um, and sometimes that points toward particular profiles of beers. Sometimes that points actually toward, uh, I think, just bad experiences with like unfresh beer. Um, right. So I, 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 but I love having that conversation. I often start from there. You know, when I first, <clears throat> when I, I, I also taught kind of beer tasting, done like these classes over the years in various set settings and, I, one of the things that I always encourage people to do when developing a palate for beer is to try and kind of identify it along, you know, to take any beer that you taste and say, okay, you know, where does this fall on a spectrum of sweet to bitter, you know, or sorry, sweet to dry to sweet, you know, bitter to soft, full to light bodied, um, and then kind of intensity. Is this a subtle beer or more intense beer? And then add one or two descriptors. So, you know, IPAs tend to be beers that are, relatively dry, bitter, medium-bodied, and very intense in their aroma profile that can be piney and citrusy, for example, right? Like, and be able to even just, like, say that. Like, those four things plus two descriptors, even one descriptor, puts you in such a good spot then to be able to start identifying beers that you like, you know? And you say, oh, I tend to like beers that are 
drier or I like beers that are sweeter and maltier, you know, things like that. Um, and that can just give you, once you try to start, you know, talking to a bartender, talking to a uh, beer buyer, uh, uh, you know, any beer store, um, bottle shop, you can really open up a much wider range of beers that you're likely to enjoy just by having even a little bit of that kind of vocabulary. But for a lot of people, it's really intimidating and they don't necessarily have a way to start developing that. Um, but I do think that that is a, a good way to kind of dip your toes into um, beer selection. Do you think your your experience as as a brewmaster, again, one that, that did do, you know, now, now has a, a decade and a half you know, of experience, um, in the actual creation, but also the schooling behind it, that obviously that's, that's a more informed answer than, you know, me just talking to like a guy who loves beer and just, you know, when you're, I'm assuming all of that kind of goes into that. It just in terms of, of how you approach beer in general, uh, by making it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, it, at the same time, I think it's leaning a little bit on kind of my teaching, my teaching background again, which is to say like, Hey, you know, think about like, what's the simplest way that you could start talking about beer to someone else that would help them understand what they're tasting, you know? Yeah. And then that they can use to describe it to others. Yeah. No, I mean, even in just in this, the short, short amount of time, your your description to me just a few moments ago was, you know, kind of just, oh, I have never even had this conversation that way. Um, when it, when it comes to uh, approaching beer, um, do, do you, um, uh, when, when you're, how do I want to phrase this question? Cause I know we're getting close on time and I want to make sure I get to some yeah. of the stuff. Um, when you're, um, entertaining people here in, in Portland, mm-hmm. I'm assuming obviously Breakside now has what, like five, five locations, four locations, five locations. Uh, we currently have four locations we're about to add a fifth and a sixth yes okay yeah so d- definitely expanding so when you're not taking people to to breakside but you want to you know in, expose them to the you know the great brewer, brewery options that we have here in the pacific northwest where do you send people to yeah if we're if we're talking about portland specifically um i will always send friends uh to, over to von ebert uh, Sam Pecorero and his team over there do an amazing job. Uh, just world-class beers are a small brewery, medium-sized brewery, and uh, the quality of beer that comes out of that place, the focus of beers is just, it, it's great. You know, I always look about, for me, the things that I look for in beer, it's hard for me to turn off the critical side, right? Like, I'm always right. thinking about beer when I'm tasting someone else's beer. And so the nicest compliment I can pay to any other brewer is that the beer is so good that I stopped thinking about it. Yeah. And Von Ebert's beers do that for me. Um, I'd also say upright, you know, Alex, uh, where I got my start, those guys still continue to make world-class beer. Uh, Alex's beers are quirky, idiosyncratic, very, very personal, very focused um, interpretations of style that are distinct from pretty much anyone else. Uh, over at Wayfinder, uh, Natalie Baldwin just took over there. They've been making great beer for a number of years. Natalie used to work for Breakside for six years. Um, so I'm really excited to see what she does there now that she's brewmaster. Um, she's a great lager brewer. Really excited for that. Uh, Ruse Brewing, uh, Sean Kalis and Devin Benware run a small shop that's focused mainly on hoppy beers and they're world-class brewers as well. They do both the hazy side and West Coast IPAs really well. They're as nerdy about hops as anyone uh, in, in uh, the Northwest. Uh, and then 
Uh, I'm really excited, too, about Whitney Burnside's new brewery, Grand Fur, which just opened back in November. She and her husband, Doug Adams, um, are just doing wonderful beer and food right now, and uh, I think that place can be really successful. Yeah, it's a, that's actually a good segue because I don't think this the one thing I might not have prepared you for, Ben, was if it's not brew, if it's not brew, if it's not a brewery, are there food places that you you either regularly like to go to or, you know, where does Ben and Ben Edmonds eat? Where yeah. do you like to go eat? Yeah, uh, I love eating around town. I probably, uh, you know, post pandemic or you know whatever part of the pandemic this remains at this point. Um, uh, has definitely changed the way the frequency with which I go out and of course just getting a little older and not going out as often, uh, minding costs, things like that. Um, but a couple of places that I really love, uh, pasture up on Alberta. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they make some really great, wonderful sandwiches Been big fans of Breakside, big supporters of us, uh, for a long time. And I just love their whole, uh, butchery program. Uh, Sebastiano's out in Montevilla, the, um, sandwiches they do and the baked goods they do are really fantastic. Uh, and then I'm a big fan also. Uh, we eat a lot of Mika. Uh, it's right near my house. So up on, uh, up on Sandy, I think it's the, the best uh, Vietnamese food in town. Yeah. I, I've, that's the first time I've heard of that. So I'll be sure to check that out. This is one thing I love is just like, you know, as much as the food scene has changed in the past two or three years, a lot of great places not with us. There's still these little, you know, neighborhood spots that are, that are so great that people are still discovering that gratefully have, have been able to endure. Absolutely. Um, through all this that kind of leads me to uh the you know kind of where i want to wrap things up in is is we talked about this a little bit the the change in the industry and the things you've you've changed and obviously the pandemic mm-hmm. and everything that's gone into that is just it's changed the way we operate it's the way change the way change the way people work um you know you you, you had mentioned um you know somebody wanting to break into the industry um, today is much different than it was when you were trying to break into it much different than 20 years ago. It's, it sounds as if now is a great time for somebody that may want to get their, you know, hands dirty and get into it. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think there's a ton of jobs out there in the beer industry right now. I also think that this is going, there's some turbulent times ahead for breweries. I don't know that 9,500 breweries nationally is sustainable. Um, you know, at least in the kind of setup that breweries are in right now, uh, there's been this big push in the last half decade, I would say toward, uh, the taproom brewery model, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, no kitchen, no food. So you, but you have a retail presence through a tap room and then you also try and can beer and get it out to market. Um, and, a lot of places have gone that route, and I think that it, you know, feeling like the food service side is too isn't isn't uh, profitable or is too much of a headache. Um, and I don't know that, you know, I, I think that a lot of those taproom brewery models are trying to find ways to thrive when there's so many of them and when there's so many beers in the marketplace. So while there's a lot of jobs out there, I also think this is kind of a um, difficult time for breweries themselves. Sure. So I don't know what the, the security of some jobs might not be as good as it was five years ago. Yeah. So it, it sounds as if you're saying there's going to be, there's going to have to be some sort of industry correction that's going to, going to come along and. Yeah. Um, and I guess in some do what it does. Not that different with restaurants, restaurants open and close all the time. Right. Yeah. You know? And so 
I just think that like a brewery, you know, 10 years ago, if you got a job at a brewery, you know, 80% of breweries succeeded, you know, and, and continued in business five years later. And I think now that number is still very high. It's much higher than restaurants are, but I don't know that it's quite as rosy as it was, uh, you know, in 2015. And sure. that may just be kind of the sign of a mature market. Um, so people should be prepared to bounce around a little bit. All right. Well, Ben, I got to say, this has been super educational. Again, the marrying of your your uh, your two professions together. Yeah. I, I, I learned a lot. Um, awesome. Thank you. Uh, if if one were to go and uh, check out the new Whitbeer, do you have a recommended pairing, uh, a food pairing that you think goes great with Whitbeer? Yeah. I mean, I think just the simplest thing would just be like any kind of raw oyster pairing is, with it is amazing. Like, I think that it's just a, a Whit beer and oysters for me is a match made in heaven. Um, I also really like it with like kind of uh, like any type of like uh, like a teriyaki salmon, barbecue salmon type combo, like that kind of oily fish, slightly tangy sauce. That's going to play well with some of the subtler notes in the Whit beer. And the Whit beer has enough body um, that it's not going to be overwhelmed by kind of some more uh, aggressive flavors compared to some other light beers. All right, there we go from the brewmaster himself. All right, Ben, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right